Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. And this lady comes up to me and says, do you have medicine? And so, of course, as a traveler going to a tropical place, of course, I had medicine. And so I say, yes. And said, okay, our shaman is sick. Could you come and check, you know, what he has? And I'm thinking, okay, I don't have any kind of medical training whatsoever. That was Laura Lou Desjardins, who is today's guest. She was talking about the time she was in a remote village and she was asked to be the village doctor. You're not going to believe how this story ends. You're going to hear it today. Laura Lou is full of incredible stories. She's a French lawyer who has lived in seven different countries, speaks four languages, and has been working on environmental issues and fighting injustices on behalf of indigenous people around the world for over a decade. Today, you're going to hear her tips on ethical travel in indigenous areas, some advice for cracking the cultural code wherever you travel so you can get more out of your trip, the importance of being unafraid when following some different paths in life that others may not necessarily agree with, and of course, we commiserate on the curiosities of life in Norway as immigrants where we both live. All of that and much more happening in today's show right now. So buckle up, strap in, thanks for being here, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Excited to bring you this conversation today. Always a treat when I get to talk in person with somebody, and this interview took place in my backyard. Laura Lou, as I mentioned, is a fellow immigrant to Norway. She has a very popular blog called A Frog in the Fjord, and she actually wrote a book of the same name. It's been a bestseller here in Norway. Of course, we talk about the book and some quirky things we've experienced as foreigners here in Norway. And I'd say one of the core themes here is just integrating in another culture. And as she put it, cracking the cultural code, which is always on every traveler's agenda, right? When we can crack that cultural code even a little bit, we're able to meet more locals, enhance our trip, have more authentic experiences. So that's a big part of this conversation, as well as all of the other things you heard 
I'm going to get into it in just a moment. First, a quick reminder to stick around on the back end if you'd like. I want to give a shout out to somebody in this community who reminded me of a phrase I like to say that really fires me up and keeps me going on an exciting path. So I'll share that with you as well as a quote that offers a reminder of the power we hold within. Thanks for listening. Please enjoy my chat with Laura Lewin. I'll see you on the other side, my friend. Laura Lou Desjardins, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for being here. Uh, I just wanted to try out my French. That's the most French thing I've ever said, by the way. <laughs> I know zero French, but it's, it seems like a beautiful language. You were kind enough to come up here, and then we're sitting in my backyard. Sun's out. We can't always say that in Norway. True. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited to chat with you. The last time we met, we were not recording, but you gave me your book, A Frog in the Fjord, One Year in Norway, which was actually five years in Norway condensed down into one, but five years of experience. So we'll talk about that. But I loved it. I read the whole thing. I can definitely recommend it. So I want to let everybody know to check that out. And what an accomplishment. Thanks. Writing a book in in not your native language. Yeah, I mean, it, it was... Yeah, it was a bit of a challenge, but I did learn English as a child in Australia when I was uh, living there. So I had it in me, but it's true that writing a book when it's not your native language is a bit more challenging. But the idea is also to write this for uh, all travelers coming to Norway, whether you want to move here or just travel here, and also those who don't have English as a native language. So I hope that it resonated with everyone. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm going to ask you some questions later on just about... As travelers, uh, long-term, short-term travelers, I mean, you want to figure out different ways you can integrate into culture. And, you know, that was one of the threads, I think, in the book is like you trying to find your way into Norway and kind of like find your way into the culture and find your, your place there. But you've been doing this on a broader scope for many, many years. And that's where I want to start is your work in human rights with indigenous people and I mean, you just sent me a couple stories in email before this, and I was just like, "Wow!" Uh, so I know we're gonna we're gonna hear some good ones today. Well, I mean, just I guess explain to people and explain a bit to me what what you've been doing for years and how you ended up following this career path. Um, so I was born in Paris, and uh, from a French mom and a, actually a Canadian father from Quebec, and my parents uh, had me and my brother quite young. Um, how old were they? They were twenty three. And where did they meet? They met in Canada. Okay. Uh, and my they are a bit like originals. You know, my mom is a carpenter mm -hmm. and my father is a nurse. What happened is that they wanted to travel. And they had two small children, uh, three and one. So I was the one who was three years old. And they decided at that point to cross the Australian desert for a year in a break. So in a, really? in a car. Yeah. <laughs> So I did that. Cross the desert with a three and a one-year-old? <laughs> yeah. So I well, did, As an adventure? <laughs> yeah. No way. So, yeah, yeah. So I didn't have nappies anymore, but my, f my brother did. Um, and getting there, they stopped several months in Asia. And then, yeah, and then they went to Australia. So we did that for, I think, nine or ten months. Do you remember it? I, th I mean, it's very strange, not really because I've seen pictures. Uh, I'm not sure whether what I remember comes from the pictures or 
reality, but I do remember feelings and I, I remember I had a lot of nightmares that I was going to be eaten by a lion. <laughs> Although there are no lions in the Australian desert, but I didn't know that as a three-year-old. Were, were you all walking? No, no, we were in the car. Okay. Uh, but, you know, this is before seatbelts and security and all that stuff. Right. So we were in the back in this brake. I don't know if it's called a brake. It's like this car with the back is totally flat. So we were yeah. just playing in the background and just stopping. hanging out playing, stop. driving through the desert. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we did that and my parents kind of had this travel bug, right? So they, they were moving around all the time and their kind of model was that they would um, go back to France when they needed money. Then they would work a lot, uh, save up money and they didn't really own that much. And then they would go back to somewhere. So we spent many years in Australia. We went back and forth and also in Asia, a lot in Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, Thailand. Yeah, so those were mainly the places. But so if so, what happened is that because I was a child um, living this life, it kind of changes a little bit your perspective on things. And I think it brought to me, you know, I'm very adaptable. Mm. So my friends and my family say, you know, you can put me in any place on earth where there are two people and I will learn the language. I will, <laughs> I will find a job. I will adapt. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also I remember as a child, what I wanted was stability, right? I wanted a television. I wanted childhood friends. Yeah. So, I mean, that's another okay. side of things. You were kind of longing for that, that you didn't have. Yeah. I was yeah. longing for that. We were moving a lot, but what, what were the ages? Can I just ask? So I can get yeah, some context. So it's between uh, three years old and 11 years old. Okay. Yeah. Had. Very formative years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but during those years, I was, um, the last years were quite uh, important. Like when I was between 9 and 11, uh, then we lived in um, a village in Australia, which had a very high proportion of indigenous peoples. And I, I think I looked back on it afterwards and realized maybe that was, you know, those years were so important for me, maybe. And, and that year I didn't have that many friends. So I was reading a lot, reading a lot of books, and I was, I think I was observing as well. And uh, yeah, so I, I don't know what happened. But after that, I, when I was 18, I decided to learn Indonesian and Malay at, at university, and I took a degree in uh, Southeast Asian studies. Well, what were the what were the things that you witnessed during that time that impacted you in your life? I think it was very strange because. Um, I was, you know, I'm I'm French, I'm white, and I get to this place where I'm an immigrant. Uh, I'm I spoke English, but not that well because I had learned it and unlearned it several times in my childhood because we were going back and forth. But I came to this village, and I remember being accepted by, you know, the kind of Caucasian Australians there more than they were accepting the Aboriginals whom they had grown up with. So I think that. And there was a lot of violence as well at school, I remember. And, and I could hear the adults around me talking about, you know, Aboriginals not allowed to go into this bar. And so I think it's like this background noise that you can't be part of, but that you understand that there's this injustice. Um, and then I went back several years later as a teenager and uh, to the same village. And then I realized that, you know, the indigenous people, I mean, the indigenous friends I had 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 quite rough stories between that age of 10 and 15. Um, most of them had dropped out of school. They, I mean, it was really heavy, and I, I think it just 
stuck with me that this is this is not right you know there's something there that's just not right Australia is very close to Indonesia and I spent a lot of time in Indonesia as a child and and in and in Australia at school we were learning Indonesian <laughs> So then, um, you know, from 11 to 18, I was in France going to school. And then I decided I want to learn the Southeast Asian language. I want to travel. And what better than Indonesian, a, a language spoken by, I think, over 300 million people, 350 million people. So I just took a chance. I studied that for three years, literature, history, everything. Yeah. And then I realized it, was, it would be hard to find a job. So I studied law. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually I managed to merge the two, you know, and then I went to human rights law and environmental law. And then I, I managed to eventually in my adult life to work with indigenous people's rights and also what happens when, you know, multinational corporations come and take lands or need the resources they, they need every day to live, whether it's water or, yeah. Uh, tree trees or anything else yeah. like that so okay. I, I worked yeah i've been working um i think 17 years in like rainforest protection human rights law uh plastic pollution etc wow okay you circle back to the travel lifestyle you wanted yeah. the stability as a child but then exactly <laughs> What, what happened? Did you have some kind of realization or was it just that this is where you feel comfortable? Is, yeah, I felt I, at the time, at least. I mean, you live, you're settled now, but yeah, still in another country. Not exactly. In your, yeah. Still in another country. <laughs> My husband isn't French. He isn't Norwegian. You know, there's still that kind <laughs> right. of element of travel. Yeah, it's it's uh, you're right. It's a bit strange that I wanted that stability. But then the first thing I did when I turned 18 was put everything in place for me to be able to travel. And I did because I lived several years in Indonesia. Uh, then I lived in Canada for several years. Uh, I lived in the UK. I lived in Denmark. So as an adult, I actually moved around a lot. Uh, but I think there's this thing where, you know, there's probably studies about this. But if you travel a lot as a child, there's this kind of need to also travel later in life. That, that, you that, feel is, comfortable. The, that is the stability. That yeah, is the exactly. subconscious safe safe place, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, and you're always the foreigner. I think there's a certain, strangely enough, there's a comfort in always being the one learning new things and the a little bit outsider, but trying to integrate, you know. So I've been continuing to do that many, many times. Why do, why do you thrive in that uh, environment? I think it's very exciting. I mean, you have a travel podcast, so I'm sure you, <laughs> you feel the same. <laughs> it's very exciting to discover new food and you discover all these interesting people that, uh, uh, you know, I think we've all had maybe, I mean, those traveling, we've all had this experience probably where you leave for a year, you've had the most amazing experiences, you've met so many people, you've seen volcanoes, you've been, you know, scuba diving with dolphins or whatever, and you go back to your parents' home or your uncle's home or whatever, and nothing has changed in their home, <laughs> nothing has changed in their lives, and you're thinking, how can we have had, the, you know, we've had the same year, the same amount of time has passed, yet I have experienced this much. Um, so I remember that very bizarre feeling of walking in after months and months or away and then just kind of walking in and being like, was that just a dream? Like did that all just happen? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you, and you surpass yourself. You, you do things that you didn't know you were able to do. 
And you have so many stories to tell, you know, as you see in my book, I love telling stories. So traveling is also a way to have a lot of inspiration mm. to, to, to tell those stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you've been able to, like you said, combine your expertise after law and, and the Indonesian studies and the, everything that you mentioned before and combine it in a way where you were able to actually make an impact on indigenous communities, it sounds like, and, and mm. rainforest protection and stuff like that. I guess this is a twofold thing. One, I just want to hear more about some of the things that you've done. And because I think that's always interesting to hear because the the idea of, well, we're going to protect, you know, these indigenous lands or whatever, whatever the uh, idea is. And, and then, but then how does actually, how does that happen? Like, what does that look like in reality? How do, how do people actually do that? How does progress get get made? You have some, you know, real world examples. So I think it would be great to hear them. Just, I guess the first, the broader question would be for somebody listening that's kind of like, well, this is cool that you're able to make a difference in these ways. Like, what advice do you have for somebody that it doesn't have to necessarily be, I want to work in human rights or whatever, but let's say they want to make a difference in X, Y, or Z thing that matters to them. What would you say? I think, I mean, this is very stereotypical answer, a bit cliche, but I think you have to be unafraid. It's not like my parents were delighted when I told them I was going to study Indonesian and Malay at 18, you know. You would think they would be, though, because yeah, they dragged you guys all over the world. It I sounds know. like that would have been like they should give you a hard time about anything. <laughs> but they, they changed. <laughs> they changed in the meantime and they settled and um, and it became different. And I think that I, you know, in fact, I didn't have a clear vision of what I wanted. I just went for what I felt was right. And I thought, I want to do this right now. And... I didn't have a lot of money. Um, I had to work a lot. It's not like anyone was financing all of that. But I think you just have to be unafraid and kind of, you know, listen to your guts. Is this what you want to do? Like, don't listen to people. I remember when I went to live in Indonesia. Um, so I had a bachelor in Indonesian studies uh, and I had another one in law. And I had a professor, thankfully, who said to me, look, you know this amazing language. You haven't practiced for a long time. I'm going to help you find an internship there so that you can figure it out, like what you want in life. But I think you should really pursue this. This is really important. So I, I went there with this internship, which, which was almost not paid. And kind of, let's see what, how this goes, you know. And I was going to work for this indigenous organization in Indonesia. And I remember this friend of mine who told me, but you're going to lose all these pension points, these like retirement points. From and, France? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> and it's like... Because you're working out of the country? Yeah, because okay. I was not re even really working. Right, it, not building it didn't your really career. Count. Right, I wasn't right, building yeah. my career. Uh, sort of the practical... Exactly. And then I was going to, you know, look into indigenous women's rights. And then I had other people in my family who were like, but you can't make a career out of working with indigenous people's rights and women and... It's like, what do you know? <laughs> you know, if I want to do this now, it doesn't mean I'm going to be doing this in 30 years. But I think you just have to follow your path in a way. And now, in my position now, nobody tells me, oh, you made all the wrong choices. Because they just look at where you are today, you know. Mm, yeah. And when right. I started writing my blog, it's the same. Uh, oh, but why are you writing a blog? And, uh, you know, why are you writing a book and most people don't finish it? Well, maybe, but, you know, maybe I'll finish mine and maybe... <laughs> yeah, give me a high five. I love that. 
So well, um, why are there so many naysayers? <laughs> I think in France particularly, there, there's a lot because there's this idea that there are only a few paths which are there for you, mm. which is very restrictive. But I think in other countries, maybe the US is a bit different, um, maybe Norway as well. But um, life is long. As I say in, in the book, my grandmother always says this, you know, life is long and it's short, but it is also long and you have time to do a lot of things. And I think that if you make a mistake, if I had made a huge mistake by working with indigenous peoples in Indonesia and lived in the jungle and thought after six months, you know, I don't like this. Well, I can just turn it around and do something else. And you still would have had some wonderful experiences. Exactly. Right? And then you don't regret anything because I think that's the, the problem I see in people my age now, people regretting, you know, um, not doing this or that or oh, not becoming okay. a dancer or whatever their passion was. So, mm. Um, mm. so I don't have any regrets. Um. What a wonderful <laughs> place to be in yeah. life, right? <laughs> that's true. It's a gift. Yeah. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. Working with indigenous people and, and human rights, what are we're going to get into some of the advice around what, what we as individuals can do, but I wanted to hear about some of your experience. Mm. This is like this, this idea you became the village doctor at some point <laughs> in, in one of these villages. I mean, you've lived some pretty incredible experiences that the average traveler doesn't mm. 
get to experience because there's not that close relationship and and yeah i mean you can explain to us like, yeah. like share some stories like I, I guess share some of the the moments that kind of stand out and the connections and some of the stories around yeah. that if you don't mind i think you know the first thing that's important to to remember is that indigenous peoples have this kind of uh there's on one hand there's a stigma on I would say all indigenous peoples in the world, um, because yeah, because of history of colonization, etc. But there's also an exot. What is this name? Exotification is that a, a word? Like people see them as exotic, you know, because we have this idea that oh, uh, they live this uh, life uh, bonding with nature, and they have they are very spiritual beings, etc. And a lot of people want to live, you know, have this experience to live with indigenous communities. And so I think that the the truth of what a lot of indigenous communities live is in the middle, which is that indigenous peoples are not outside of our world; they are in the same world that we are in now. And I remember. Uh, people telling me, oh, but then they don't know what internet is and they don't know that. And of course they do. They have, you know, <laughs> most right. indigenous peoples in the world have access to a smartphone and they have access to internet. And uh, it's it's not like they live outside of this world. So that's the first thing to remember. And then in, being indigenous is about identity. Um, so there's a lot of debate around these ideas where... Um, other people from, you know, majority populations will start judging and say, oh, but for example, to the Sami people in Norway, oh, but now you're not using uh, reindeers anymore to go around. You're using these uh, electric, uh, you know, snow scooters. So then you're not really indigenous anymore because you're not using the traditional ways. Adopting technology. Yeah, for example. Yeah. And, and, and that's not I mean, that's not right, first of all, because it's not for the majority population to tell, you know, whoever, whatever you feel is your identity. It's not for other people to say that. Right. Um, and then and then that's also keeping communities in this kind of secluded world where they can't have access to to technology and to, I don't know, healthcare or, you know, all these things that we... I mean, that have been developed in the world yeah. in the past hundred years. So that's the first thing I think that's quite important to know. And I say this because, you know, I write a lot about Norway. I'm, I've been working uh, with um, Sami researchers in the north of Norway. And so I have quite a few people contacting me and asking me, oh, I want to travel to Norway. Uh, can you help me, you know, live with the Samis, the traditional way in Alavo and all of that? And it's like... But that then that's kind of a scene, you know. That's like playing in a play in a way. Right, uh, if, right. if if we yeah yeah. So so I think that's uh, an important thing to say. Uh, yeah. Also, if you're going to travel to, I don't know Peru. You know there are indigenous communities everywhere in the world. So Peru, uh, the whole Amazon. There's uh, Central Africa and a lot of countries in Africa as well. You have the whole of Asia. Mm. Um, and the fact that in many of these countries, governments refuse to give the status of indigenous people to these people. So that means they also are not wanting to give them the rights associated. You know, for example, something I worked on a lot is having access to education in your own language. So I worked with uh, setting up jungle schools that we called, where kids could, well, speak their own language at school 
and learn how to count in their own language, etc. Yeah. Um, so that's one, you know, access to language is very important and then allowed to practice your own religion and not be imposed another religion by others. Mm. Um, yeah, so there, there are many issues there. But what I was working with, I was working on rainforest protection and the way we were doing that at this NGO I was working with for almost 10 years was that indigenous communities were the guardians, are the guardians. I mean, this is, you know, studies have shown this. They are the ones who can protect the forest the best because they live there and they need the forest to survive, basically. They have honey and they have, you know, fruit uh, trees there and uh, they can make uh, houses from whatever they find, uh, leaves, etc. Yeah. Um, so I've been working a lot with uh, with those communities, and the the you know the great travel experiences I have was when I was going there. I was going to the um, the rainforest in Indonesia. In so I was there in Papua. I was there in Aceh. I was in Sulawesi, uh, in the Mentawai Islands next to Sumatra, and it's just amazing because having traveled before as you know a regular traveler, then you arrive there. You're the only foreigner. Most of them have actually never seen a foreigner before. And because I speak Indonesian, it's usually not their native language, but there's, they can speak it or someone else can translate. And then you're just invited in, in a completely different way than, than if I was just traveling. And, uh, and then also they need me. You know, they need me because I'm kind of the link to the outside world. And I'm the link to understanding the language of uh, international media or the language of um, uh, politicians okay. or you know so so there you're, was you're this a sort of a your own version of a translator in some yeah way, I think I saw myself just as a kind of a bridge yeah, yeah I'm just okay. this bridge you know I take what they I took what they told me and I tried to bring that message in a way that uh, yeah international media or campaigners in Norway would understand so that we can influence for example. Uh, companies in Norway um, to use less of the, you know, of the material or the food that comes from the rainforest. Okay, for yeah, example. that's a specific example. So yeah. if they cut down on, I think you sent a one palm oil, palm oil or, then yeah, if, tropical if, timber. If they yeah. cut down on that, then that preserves the forest, and it, yeah. it's it's yeah. So you're kind of you're looking at the big picture on both sides and trying to come up with some mm. middle place that benefits. Yeah. The indigenous communities and yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, and that benefits the the forest and climate as well, right? right. So there's a bigger perspective there. But it's I a big re uh, responsibility to kind of yeah. But I remember I was always in this duality because on one hand I was this you know professional person, I was there to talk about work, but on the other hand I was thinking, wow. <laughs> This is amazing. <laughs> Just as a traveler. <laughs> as a traveler. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, once I was in Aceh and they were like, you know, there are still tigers here. And I was like, oh my God, I hope I see a tiger <laughs> and that's not even organized or anything. Yeah. So, so it's, um, yeah. And you have conversations with people uh, who tell you the truth, you know, of what's happening, which is very, I mean, I, I feel really privileged to have heard those truths because I think when you just travel through, they're not just going to sit down and explain all the difficulties and all the structural problems that they have as a village or as a community or with the children, you know. So so it felt, yeah, it felt very privileged. But the downside is that because I didn't want to be that tourist, I took almost no pictures 
because then you kind of change the um, dynamics yeah. with the people. Mm. Um, and I also regret, so I have one regret that I didn't write more while I was traveling, mm. all these stories. You know? So yeah. I remember a lot of them. Yeah. Um, well, but yeah. Can you share one or two? That's, uh... Yeah, I mean, I can share one. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, so I was in the Mentawai Islands, which is a small archipelago, um, which is not so far from Sumatra in Indonesia. And so this is an archipelago which has a lot of rainforest because it's been like the current in the sea between the Mentawai and Sumatra is very strong. So it's been quite difficult for loggers and oil palm plantation companies to come there. Um, So there's a lot of forest. There's a lot of people living traditionally. um, And you might have seen, I mean, it's very visual because the, those living traditionally, they have all these tattoos um, and they are called the flower people. So they have this, these, a lot of flowers in their hair, also men and uh, beaded uh, yeah, that decorations. Sounds lovely. And, yeah. Yeah. So it's a very special place. And I was going there to, to um, check on the jungle schools. Um, so I had all this, I had this plan of five schools I had to, I had to visit. And uh, so you only get up there with a canoe. So it was kind of a long trip from Norway, plane, and then from Jakarta to Padang, and then another boat to Mentawai, and then a canoe, right? So, so I, <laughs> so I get, uh, so I had several hours of canoe up there, and then we get there, and I was still, and that's an interesting thing, is that as a foreigner, you're kind of in this time frame of a Westerner, right? Uh, this day I'm going to do this, and that day I'm going to do that, and then you get there, and after about three hours, you want, or maybe half an hour sometimes, you're like, ah, this is not going to work out. <laughs> like, this this great the schedule. schedule yeah. right. <laughs> like, this is not how it works here, and I think, yeah, that hit me every time, but that time, I it had not hit me yet, so we get to the um, we get to the village, and there's nobody in the village, nobody's there to welcome us. Usually you have kids and people waiting for you, right? And like, okay, this is strange. So I'm with a team and um, of locals um, and and they don't really understand either. And so we, we start walking in, the, in this very small village and, um, and then we see that everybody is in the same house. They're all gathered in this house. And this lady comes up to me and says, do you have medicine? And so, of course, as a traveler going to a tropical place, of course, I had medicine. Um, and so I say, yes. And said, okay, our shaman is sick. Could you come and check, you know, what he has? And I'm thinking, okay, I don't have any kind of medical training whatsoever, but sure, <laughs> you're not going to say no, right? I have all this medicine. I'm not going to help him. That's right. not an option. So I get there and it was such a powerful scene because it's like they don't have electricity. So it's all these candles in this house um, with, I don't know, 50, 60 people. The whole village was there around this man in with all his tattoos, almost naked. He only had his like traditional, you know, uh, clothing. Um, and, and he was very, very, very thin. And so they kind of all split to let me, you know, get closer to him. And I looked at him and I thought, this man is dying. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I could see this man was dying. And I look at his stomach and he had this big black kind of... I don't know, stone, like a stone, you know, at the level of his stomach. And I thought, 
yeah, this is not, this doesn't, this isn't looking very good. Oh. So, so, so I thought like very thin, but like sticking out like a yeah, big, uh, exactly. Bump. And I asked him, you know, when is the last time you ate? And he said, I haven't eaten in almost three months. And and <sighs> I I figured probably he has some kind of um, tumor in his stomach or something, yeah, something like that. Right. That. Um, so then I'm like, look, I'm I'm really sorry. So in front of sixty people, right, the whole village, I'm like, I'm really sorry, but I can't. I mean. I can't help you. Uh, I don't have anything for this. <laughs> I mean, you just got there. How yeah, I intense. just got there like, like 10 to 15 God. minutes earlier. After all the traveling and <laughs> everything. Like, <laughs> so intense. And so I'm like, and all these people are looking at me like, please, please yeah, help him with, like, do. just give him anything you have in that little box with all your, your medication. I was like, oh. And I didn't want to give him anything strong. You know, you don't want to give malaria tablet to someone who's, I mean, you see, yeah. it's, it's just, so I thought, okay, I'll just give him this, uh, these herbs, which are something I use when I have stomach pain, but it's not any kind of chemical. It's not a chemical. It's not pharmaceutical. It's like a bit of coal in a, yeah, uh, in a little pill. Like a, so, or a herbal supplement. Yeah. It's yeah. like a herbal supplement when you have like a bit of uh, stomach ache, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I mean, this can't hurt. This is nothing, right? So I'll just give him this and I'm off the hook in a way. And he takes this and like five hours later, he dies. <laughs> oh my gosh. So. <laughs> So I'm like, I've been there Did for less than 12 hours. Did they think that you were responsible for... Well, no, they didn't think I was responsible, although I didn't speak Mentawai, the Mentawai language there. So, Because that could have been a... However... Also could have been a dangerous... Yeah, however, so the guy died in the night. So then they, like the whole village was awake and they started all these festivities. I mean, not festivities, but traditional, you know, process um, yeah, for his, for and, his yeah. death. But then what happened is that the the local guy who was with me told me, be very careful. I mean, the guy was sick and all that, so nobody is accusing you. However, <laughs> if anything else happens here while you're here, you'll be held responsible, right? What so, does that mean? Well, I mean, a lot of these communities, at least in Indonesia, um, you know, they believe in spirits and witches and bad spirits coming to harm them, etc. And I was a newcomer, so yeah, right. all these bad things happening suddenly yeah. when I'm here is, yeah, yeah. is not a good no. thing. No. Yeah. And then suddenly this guy, I mean, you know, this little girl comes out of nowhere and is like, my father is sick, can you come and help him? And I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so I and so I haven't seen a single jungle oh, school at this point, no right? Stress. I have I haven't done anything about my work at no. all at this point. And so I go to see the guy, and I have to again, I have to go. And the guy was also in stomach pain, but he seemed in pretty good health condition. And he tells me he's been eating these raw um you know shells from the river. And I guess oh, I'm thinking, okay, maybe he has food po food poisoning. So I didn't don't give him anything. And I'm like, look. Uh, just, you know, if it's not gone in 48 hours, I mean, like, come back. You're running around <laughs> playing doctor. Like, I'm not here for this. But then after all this, I'm like, okay, now we can go, right? I've, I've, uh, well, I haven't saved two people, but the, the guy was better. And the other one, well, they were all busy, yeah. you know, taking right. care of him right, and right. calling the whole forest with mm -hmm. all this noise and all of that. And nobody could sleep because they were, you know, dancing all night. And, but then, 
we start walking around and we're thinking, okay, what should we do? You know, should we leave? Because I'm on the clock. Like I have a boss back in Norway expecting, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> results. Um, yeah, so Norwegians I, are pretty on time. Yeah, so, so I know. was on one hand, I was thinking this is great, you know, being part of this whole funeral, mm -hmm. be, being able to witness this firsthand and being with them and... But then the then this guy comes up to us and says, "Oh no, you can't leave. You can't leave the village. Uh, now that you were present while this man died, uh, you can't leave. I think it was for four days or five days or something because the whole process was going to take that much time. And they were like, "Now that you were there at the beginning, you have to stay to the end." And the reason was that they wow. believe that. Um, the all the spirits of their ancestors will come and pick up the spirit of this shaman and so if we are wandering around in the forest they will also take us and then we will develop mental illnesses uh, and because this man was a shaman it was a very big right. traditional yeah. very funeral very important person in but the, the the interesting thing is that from when he said that i thought okay i'm just gonna let it go like there's not gonna be any visit to any jungle school you know i'm just gonna go with the flow and it was amazing yeah you know it was amazing because we were there together and and they told me like you can come back anytime and they remember me and i took i, I became the photographer of the funeral They mm. asked me because I was the only one with a, a camera. Wow. And so I took a lot of pictures and then I, I made an album and I sent it to them oh, afterwards. So they were nice. really happy with that, that I oh, could wow. Uh, wow. Uh, document. Wow. <laughs> wow. And this is just one, <laughs> one story. One. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. But it's, um, I think it's a bit shocking to go back to the same community because change happens very fast. You know, as soon as there's a road, um, as soon as anything comes in, uh, then, you know, everything changes because a, a lot of people from the outside world come in. Yeah. And also, I think what I remember the most sadly from these trips is that all these indigenous communities, at least in Indonesia, many of them have this shame of being indigenous. Really? Uh, yeah, because they've been, you know, raised during the Suharto uh, dictatorship where yeah, it was okay. very negative to be indigenous. Okay, yeah. Racism. There was a lot of racism and discrimination. So they, are, they were always saying, oh, I'm sorry, we can't offer you more than this. And I'm sorry, mm. you know, we're not uh, developed like you. And, and, And it's what's very ironic for me, you know, now working with environment and climate is that we're trying to cut our emissions and their lifestyle is what we're supposed to inspire ourselves from. Yeah, for example, right. you know, what, what does circular economy mean? Well, it means, for example, uh, using a plate, not a plastic plate, but something that you can just throw in nature and that's going to be biodegradable. And that's what they've been doing and keep doing and right. now we're telling them you know to develop you have to use all this plastic uh I, it's a bit of a shortcut but sometimes I, i i feel like all of this is a bit ironic in a way yeah, yeah. oh yeah i could see that i mean yeah it's what you're saying is we, we yeah we should be modeling them yeah not them absolutely modeling us. absolutely Absolutely. We should be modeling them. Yeah. Uh, because they have, you know, a lot of them are still building, you know, they have building uh, knowledge for, yeah, to use only natural material, for example. Right, right. Um, and then 
Also in terms of food, they don't have intensive agriculture. Um, in terms of water, you know, so there are a lot of things where it's actually much more sustainable. Um, of course, there are other issues with access to healthcare and things like that, but I think there are models there that, that should definitely be an inspiration for yeah. you know, the worlds that we're living in. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about, as it relates to, you, you're, these experiences are so unique and they're not the typical experience that travelers are going to have, but we were talking about some of the topics we might want to cover today. And when you sent the email, I just wanted to read a, a snippet of it, if that was okay, because I think it's a great place to start on this topic. And you said, quote, I think that traveling can impact indigenous people, but it can also help them have the visibility they need for their culture not to be eradicated. They're under a lot of pressure from their governments to assimilate and often to relocate. Their lands are filled with natural resources, which are in high demand. Tourism can be a problem if it reinforces stereotypes against them and existing power structures. But it can also, when done right, be a powerful tool because it involves money. So I guess I just wanted to hear, given your background in travel and also working directly with these communities, when you say tourism can be a powerful tool if it's done right, what do you think? And I know you don't have all the answers here, but you're coming at this from all sides. So I'd really love to hear your what you think it means to do it right. And mm. maybe there's some advice here for us as individual travelers. Yeah. And also for those setting up these tours, right? Yes, uh, tour those, operators yeah. and uh and and those that are, you know, we have power with our purchases, our money, yeah, our absolutely. purchases are, we have purchasing power. So mm. we can inform the decisions companies make by choosing yeah, the right places to spend our money. So yeah. I think th I mean the key here is who who said yes, you know, to this tourism in, for example, let's say, um, I'm going to take the example of the Mentawai that I know very well. They have this amaz amazing traditional tattoo technique. Um, they, you know, visually, you know, a lot of people want to take pictures of them, etc. So the question, if you want to do tourism there, which is kind of an, I don't know if it's called ecotourism, but let's call it like that in this context, I think the whole community has to accept. They have to be involved and they have to say what their boundaries are. You know, what do they want to show you? Um, what are they going to get away from this? I remember I, I took some Norwegians um, from my work to, to Indonesia once, to Sulawesi, and they wanted a lot of things and um, from the locals. And then the locals wanted to get paid. The indigenous communities wanted to get paid and they were kind of shocked. Oh, but we're just here to see them. And I'm like, well, they have other things to do. You know, they have, yeah. um, they have like a house to build and uh, uh, they have to harvest fruit to sell You're it on the market. You're taking <laughs> up their time. It's just like you, they have, they have stuff to do. Then not just sitting there waiting for you to want to see them dance in their traditional clothes. Right. So I think that, uh, a lot of yeah, a lot of times they're not involved and they're not consulted as a group. Um, I know from firsthand uh, experience that many tour operators they go and they find one guy from a community and they tell him, "Look, we're, we're going to pay you this amount, and then you show us around and you'll be our guide." So then, then he 
usually it's a man. He gets all this money and all these contacts, but the rest of the community is just left on the side of the road because they're not benefiting from this. So I think if this is a collective wish and it's negotiated, you know, they have their own decision-making processes, which can seem a bit you know, foreign for us, but I mean, that's their way of deciding. So, so, so I think consultation is the first, is the first uh, element that you have to keep in mind. And then of course they have to be paid. I mean, that's as simple as that. And the fact that they are paid is actually very empowering because for them, because it means that they can also stay in this area because a lot of communities are being relocated or a lot of young people are leaving these communities because there are no jobs and because, you know, they a lot of them want to have money to send their kids to school. I mean, it's as simple as that. Yeah. So a lot of people leave to be able to work, but then when they leave, they lose their land, they lose their community, their uh, livelihood, so they usually end up in quite... Um, yeah, poor situations, very, very uh, difficult situations in cities uh, because okay. there there is discrimination. So yeah. I think it's empowering in the sense that then it allows them to stay in their area. Mm. But yeah, I think as foreigners, as travelers, we just have to accept that, you know, it's it's the same. Yeah, it's the same for them. They have a job. It might not look like my job or your job, but it's still... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that makes so much sense. I mean, you wouldn't show up at a museum and expect to get a tour guide for free, right? It, exactly. It's, it's, it's like so that that I guess comes down to that can be difficult, of course, to suss out on the ground as a traveler, as an independent traveler. Well, hey, if I'm gonna hire a guide or a tour operator to take me on this tour, and part of this tour is, uh, you know, I know like hill tribe trekking in um, Thailand's a, a you know kind of popular thing, I, and I've done it, and this was in the late '90s, and I didn't know about any of this stuff really and, and, and the issues and the questions to ask and you know so I think it is about asking questions and, yeah. and, and just and where uh, does the money go I mean if it's just one guy getting money is that really fair um, right. when yeah. the whole village is you know working towards this or the whole village has built these traditional houses why yeah. is it just the guy who was at that bar that you were at at the same time mm. or the guy who speaks a little bit more english who is going to manage to get clients yeah so it's also about redistribution inside the communities mm. and that's quite easy because then you can ask questions about that um, yeah and and if everybody from the community is on board then it's a it's a fair exchange right it's like hey we we agree we want tourists to come you know this is going to be the experience that we're going to sell and then okay and this is going to benefit us in this way and and you're going to get to come and i think you know as a traveler to be able to come and if, if it's done in this way that you're describing where it's right you know, it's about sharing knowledge and gaining new perspectives. And that's what travel is, I think. And, and these communities have so much to offer. And it's always that cultural exchange, right? And you just have to figure out how do you, how do you mediate the cultural exchange in the right way that it's fair for everybody. Yeah. And then it's about expectations. Uh, as I said earlier, a, a problem I've seen is a lot of Westerners uh, coming <laughs> to these communities and being very judgmental you know, because they use technology or because they smoke or because, and it's like, come on, <laughs> you yeah, know, come right. on, who who are you really <laughs> to, and, and it, it goes back to this kind of fantasy that we have of indigenous communities that they are in this, 
you know, glass ball and we are looking inside the glass ball and they are just intact. Um, right. But they are not objects. They are people living in the world like we are. Yeah, and instead um, of the, the connection, it's like a, yeah. uh, it's a more of an observational. Exactly. Kind of, yeah, that's. And once, just a last story, once um, we, so I was working for this NGO protecting forests. And once we get to this village and like really far, again, we had to take a canoe. I think this was in Sulawesi for hours and hours and we get to this place and all these areas don't have electricity so we you hear the generator very fast you know that is producing electricity and then we hear a chainsaw and like this for people working against illegal logging this is like the worst thing that you can hear right. a chainsaw in the tropical rainforest yeah. right and we hear the chainsaw and we're like what is happening here and then the um, one of the village leaders comes out of the forest with the chainsaw. And I remember those with me were so shocked. How can they cut down trees? And how can they, you know, this is against all of our policies and this and that. And, and I talked to the guy and he was like, well, first of all, we have to cut trees because we have to make a house. And, and then I talked to another lady afterwards who told me that because they wanted to show us, we were Westerners, and they wanted to show us that they were developed. So they had, you know, put on the generator, put on the chainsaw to kind of show us that, look, we're on the same level. <laughs> so it's like this total mis <sighs> misunderstanding right. of everything. Right. On one hand, that, you know, Westerners want to see this kind of intact life, um, total harmony with nature and on the other hand they want to show us that they are you know civilized although this is a really bad word word and then the other thing is that we can't expect them not to cut any trees because they have a life as well they have to build canoes they have to build houses you know yeah uh, yeah it's uh again they're not like this objects just yeah. standing there they have to eat and they have to live yeah. somewhere etc We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago. And immediately, I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, 
Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. I appreciate hearing those stories and that you sharing them because you know, these are important conversations to have and important perspectives to get out there. I feel that's why I really wanted to talk about a lot of this stuff and just such a unique uh, experience you have combining all of these different sides of it. It's important stuff. You're you know? speechless. <laughs> I, I mean, I wouldn't want to become the village doctor on the fly after a long travel day. I can tell you that. But the funny thing, when I went home, when I went home to France, I, my, my, we had a, a neighbor who was a doctor and I told him these stories. And for him, it was just like the funniest story ever. <laughs> he was, but I remember when I was there, a lot of the times in these communities, I was thinking, if I were to live here, I would have to take a medical training. Because that's what yeah. they need. Right, yeah. They need doctors, mm-hmm. right? They yeah. need people who can help them because they don't have access to to healthcare. Yeah. And yeah. unfortunately, just, just for no. geographically, it's exactly it's very far, and there's a lot of a lot of like things that we think is common sense, but that they actually haven't learned. So it's um, about germs and bacteria and sure. you know, things like that. Let's talk a little bit about your book here. I think this ties in with uh, some of the things that we've been touching on a bit. So the first, uh, well, a lot of this I feel is, uh, like I said, a big theme is kind of integrating into a new culture, right? Which is a process. I suppose we could start there because this is uh, something that applies to all travelers, right? Whether you're passing through or you're staying for an extended period of time, or if you, a lot of people in, in the listening audience here, they're either on the road long-term or full-time, or they're interested in doing, you know, longer type trips, or even if you're spending just two or three weeks, you know, it's always, it always makes for better travel experiences. If you can figure out some of the culture, integrate yourself a bit. You've been doing that throughout your childhood, throughout your professional life, and throughout your personal life, you know, living in another country. And you talk about a lot of the challenges of that in in your book, uh, and here in Norway specifically, which was fun for me to read because I can relate, you know, where I feel like we're, uh, we're like brother and sister here, like kind of through some of the same sort of experiences. Like, why are they doing that? Why? Why do we? I mean, we just ate like a piece of bread with cheese on it. Like, I never would have done that in my former life. Eat one piece of bread with cheese on it. That's called a brosheva, and uh, with Paul egg, right? You just put something on top of one piece of bread. Like, you know, I was an American. And like, drink I, coffee I eat, from a moomin cup. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I eat a big sandwich. I don't just eat a piece of bread with a little cheese on it. Yet here I am doing that. Well, we'll get into some Norwegian things, which you may have heard on the podcast before, but integrating into a culture, what do you... Yeah, I think it's fascinating. It's like you want for some me, more coffee, like, by the way. I, I, I can pour you out some more. Yeah, can, thanks. Can never have too much coffee, right? <laughs> we're, we're both like extreme coffee addicts. <laughs> exactly. Moving here, I think uh, Norway is one of the top five coffee per capita. consumers. Yeah, in the per world, capita. Yeah. So it's no surprise there with the weather, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I think integrating for me is is fun. It's like this code. I I feel like. I want to. Uh, you want to crack, crack the know? code. Yeah, I want to crack the code, and it 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 really is a code, mm. and every country, every culture has this code. But what's funny with Norway is that I, you know, I for example, I made this choice of going to Indonesia. All these choices I made uh, willingly, but then going to Norway was not really a choice. I got a very interesting job here. And I didn't really want to come to Norway, but I was like, okay, I'm just going to be there a year or two, whatever, but then I'll move away. 
For the job. For the job. Yeah. And I just n needed to get this first work experience that would kind of give me that CV to continue elsewhere. Um, so you were looking at it as more of a temporary stopover exactly. uh, as a part of your career. To part your of career, my career, yeah. but also yeah. I had at the time a boyfriend in Denmark. So I also wanted to go back to Denmark yeah. to be with him. Mm -hmm. So I was like, yeah, Oslo, Copenhagen can't be that bad to commute, right? Kind of the same culture. So I had that stereotype as well, not mm -hmm. knowing at all what Just painting the Scandinavian, Scandinavian broad strokes. Exactly. Yeah. Like... And so, and so I got this job, I moved here, and it was really this, in my mind, it was absolutely sure that this was temporary. And there's no surprise, because everything I had done, every travel I had done until then was temporary. Yeah, So right. there, that wasn't going to be any different, It just right? was that in your head. Exactly. Yeah. But then I did have to learn the language, because that was a requirement from my job. <laughs> and also because anywhere I go, well, I want to learn, you know, the what's happening and what people are saying and why they're doing this or that and what kind of food they're eating and all of this. So I started digging into all of that. And it was actually harder than expected. You know, I think it was easier for me to get to know Indonesian culture and crack that code than really? Norwegian. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was It was tough. I mean, the language was strange to learn and... The culture, there's so much hidden, I feel, in Norwegian culture. And I think it goes back probably to Protestantism, where everything is, you know, all these emotions that people don't express very clearly. Uh, I come from a culture where we laugh out loud and scream and, uh, you know, passionate, argue. Passionate it's very people. passionate. Yeah. But, but this is much more contained in a way. Reserved. So, reserved, yeah. Um, and then the nature was like any... Thing I've seen before in my life. I mean, when I traveled, I, I talk about it in the book, but traveling to the Lofoten and to Trumsa in the winter, I mean, it's just another planet, right? It, it's just... Spectacular it's, beauty. It's just, and you're so small. And I mean, those pictures you see online of those areas, they, they, don't, they don't show how it's like because you're so small in this huge nature and that you cannot see on pictures. So... Yeah, so that was a discovery for me. And also, I like the, the freedom that you have in Norway, also as a woman. There's so much more freedom here, I feel, than in many other places. Can you talk a, a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, just having, you know, getting this job in this uh, NGO, this environmental NGO, uh, I had no contact with anyone in this NGO. I, I wasn't recommended by anyone they just judged me on my on my cv mm. and on interviews of course uh, they trusted me and i remember the first day at work the first days at work i was asked so much for my opinion and i wasn't used to that you mm -hmm. know being in in france working in france or i mean or in indonesia yeah um that you ask the girl who's 25 26 although i had a master's degree and all of that but nobody was ever asking for my opinion mm. my expert opinion mm -hmm. and also it's about how you're treated as respect. a woman yeah it's just respect more respect than i had experienced before wow yeah. um and just going home i mean the going home at 2 in the morning without looking over your shoulder that was also new to me you know going home alone uh, and actually, the first blog post I wrote on my blog that became viral is called The Joys of Being a Woman in Norway. And that's what that's kind of the blog post that 
made my blog go international yeah. and got a lot of readers because that's exactly what I talk about in this in this blog post and also having a child I mean at that time I didn't have children but I could see around me not just women but men going on very long paternity leaves I mean my boss went on a seven month paternity leave and he didn't answer a single email for seven months and he came back and he just got his job back <laughs> <laughs> and it's like as if nothing had happened. Mm -hmm. In France, you leave for three months and it's almost as if, you know, you've been betraying your employer. I mean, that's how they make you feel. Yeah. So so I think that that freedom is something that I still value a lot mm. uh, in Norway. Yeah. Reading uh, through your book and hearing that, hearing your perspective on it and what you just shared today or just now, I remember that making me feel really good about having a daughter here because you know hearing the woman's perspective and, and having a daughter and, and you want of course you want equality you know you want to people to be respected and for me it reinforced that decision to to be here to raise children here instead of in the states again i'm not raising them there so i can't speak for that and and it's different you know it's so different everywhere but norway's a pretty small country and uh, there's some homogeny, I, I'd say. You know, everybody has their Taco Friday across the, the country. Or whatever. But then there's all these dialects and differences and, and subcultures and things, which makes it interesting, too. It was, for me, very good to hear that perspective from you and uh, that your experience was so positive in that way. It made me feel really uh, excited for my daughter's future, I guess. And also, it's funny because now I'm, you know, much more kind of grown woman. And it's funny because I hear other women the same age, I just turned 40, who live in other countries. And they and there's always this debate. Yeah, but we can't have it all. We can't have a full-time job or a leadership job mm -hmm. and have children. And it, in fact, in Norway, you can. You can have it all. And the reason is that the society is built and, and work life is built for you and your partner uh, to leave not too late, to have this, you know, flexibility, this acceptance that, yes, we have children and we have a life. And well, sometimes your child is sick. And although you have all these responsibilities, well, you're not irreplaceable for your company, but you are irreplaceable for your child. And that's kind of accepted by employers, a lot of employers here. So again, I've seen... Um, again, men, you know, I, once I had a colleague making a presentation for, I don't know, we were 80 people or something. In the middle of the conference, he gets a call from the kindergarten. He was like, his child was sick and he just left everything in the middle of the conference. And he said, I'm sorry, my child is very sick. I need to go. And I was just like, what? <laughs> and I was, I feel so ashamed because my first thought was, why didn't they call the mother? You know, which is terrible as a woman to think that. And that just shows you how conditioned we are also as women to think, well, that's not his job. He's here doing his work. Why should he leave in the middle of this conference? But then but then I kind of, you know, try to deconstruct that. And, and by talking to people and it's like, well, they these guys also accept that their wives have important jobs as well. You know, why would they be <laughs> always yeah. the ones being disturbed while they're holding a conference? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the funny thing is he left and uh, everyone was like tapping on his back like, oh, I hope she's okay. You know, I hope your daughter's okay. Have a great day and good luck. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but then, <laughs> But then because everybody accepts that, it's fine. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, and I think that's the key is that it's accepted, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and also that men do their share work of housework, mm -hmm. which is very important yeah. <laughs> so that we you know can also do other stuff mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and i think that's um you know the most feminist or sexy thing i think a man can do at least in a you know a heterosexual relationship is to do the dishes and and mop the floor and <laughs> you like that huh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and i think know, my wife likes it too yeah yeah, yeah like, exactly up the clothes and last night because know. because that's what gives <laughs> Also, it, it frees some time for us to do also other stuff, yeah. which we might find intellectually challenging, you know. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. <laughs> As you were kind of sharing, you had the social acceptance of a situation like you described where the child was sick and he could just drop everything and go. That's that's you're in that supportive environment. And I'm just thinking about maybe some people are listening that resonate with some of the values here that we share. You know, maybe there's some ways to, you know, if your society, I mean, I'm always trying to think a bit unconventionally, right? Like if you're, if your society does not support your values, then is there a way that you can still maintain your values within that society and set up structures or boundaries that allow you to, or maybe mindsets, right? Like in that case, it's like, well, I'm going to drop everything because my kid's sick and I'm just going to like have the mindset where I don't care what my company thinks, you know? And and that's like a way to just keep that type of value without having it offered to you in a culture or a society. That can have ramifications, of course, right? Because if you don't have the support, maybe maybe gets you fired, maybe. But it's just like a thought of, sort of a thought experiment, right? Like in my head, like maybe there's ways around... Yeah, um, and writing about you know other models, uh, trying. I mean, I work in policy changes, right? So laws can be changed, laws yeah. on paternity leave and maternity leave can be changed. Right? Yeah, yeah. Trying so, to do systemic change. Yeah, systemic for, change uh, yeah. in France. Getting involved. Yeah, yeah in Cha in France now they went from a paternity leave leave that was eleven days that is now a whole month. So that's three times more. Yeah. Is it enough? Probably not. But still, that's a huge change. Right. Um, so I think, you know, fighting for those rights and for those changes and just writing about alternative models. And I think that's why also I'm talking about this now, because I just want to show that it is possible. And there are societies where it exists. Yeah. Right. And these are societies where we are productive and we work. And but it's just that we also have a life. We can't mm -hmm. give up everything, right? And 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 here, I think the um, yeah, it's just another society. I mean, there are other downsides of this society, as you probably know. Yeah, we'll talk about some of those. Yeah, <laughs> but that we can't. We got to take the rose-tinted glasses <laughs> off at some point. Yeah. yeah. No. Well, I mean, you're right. You can get involved, and you know, the other thing is these cultures and these societies are all ever evolving, right? We tend to think of them as this static thing. But culture shifts, it changes, as you mentioned, just mm. with the French culture adopting more more maternity leave and things like that. And, you know, it's people that create those changes, mm, individuals and, co and collective groups. So it's, it's exciting to think that you can be a part of a cultural change that, you know, even if it's a, a small part that doesn't even happen in your generation, but it took a generation of people talking about this, getting involved, starting to create cultural shifts. So um, it's quite fascinating when you think about it from the broad perspective of a 
you know, how quickly can culture change? I mean, you see it sometimes it, ex- it changes in a heartbeat, right? Like, of course, the pandemic's an example of like how that changed work culture in, in, in a big way. But you found a great way to weave in a lot of the sort of, I would say quirky, only because I'm from outside of Norway, the quirky Norwegian things. Maybe they're not all quirky, but like the, the Norwegian cultural things that are just a, a natural part of life here. But to an outsider, they just stand out so much because they're just not things we've ever done like the bread example i used earlier okay we just made big sandwiches we never thought to you know and it's just like you know then you start becoming norwegian it's so strange like you know you're here and then all of a sudden you're like it's so funny because my wife my wife got me a a pair of those outdoor pants that have like two-toned collars (laughs) you know what i mean that like all the norwegians wear when they're out on tour (laughs) On, on tour they call it which is like just out in the forest or you know out on a outdoor trip or whatever and i was like this is the last thing i'm like 100 percent norwegian now like this was the last i have like the wool sweaters i have the you know i have all the, like you know i'm a citizen now all the things you know i eat the pieces of bread and blah blah and like i got the outdoor pants and i'm like now i'm officially this is like so i'm this gonna was the last <laughs> i'm gonna tell you what will make you really norwegian do you when you come back from any kind of travel also from the u.s do you open the tap here in norway drink a glass of very cold water and say, oh my God, the water in Norway is so good. I've missed it. <laughs> well, you forgot one part. You have to let the tap run for, for at like least like 40 minutes. seconds. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. For, for those of you not in the know, that is a weird thing at first. I was like, why, why is my mother-in-law letting the water just run and run and run? It's something they do here to because get the they, coldest water. Exactly. And they have this idea that this water is has to be amazingly cold, but also that it's of much better quality in Norway, which it probably is. It's very but, good. But it's it's funny that a lot of people react to that. And I've yeah. heard many Norwegians say, oh, I love Spain, you know, such a great holiday place. But I was so happy to drink a glass of water when I came home, <laughs> which is a very See, strange thing what I miss is the, miss. I, the lack of ice, because in America, we ice up everything. True. So it's like, it's always going to be cold because you have a glass full of ice. Yeah. But here, the refrigerator is too small to have yeah. <laughs> much ice. <in> what <laughs> I miss are the warm meals. You know, I'm yeah, used to right, very, yes. I, I, I mean, I'm French, so food culture is so You guys important. spend like five hours at lunch, right? Is that, is well, that real? Well, not five, but yeah, yeah. Uh, an hour and so a half. So how do you go back to work after like drinking wine and having like a long <laughs> leisurely lunch with all kinds of cheese and stuff? How do you actually go back to work after that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. We have long days at work and I think we have these long pauses because the, the whole day is quite long. But the thing is, I love food so much and I, I also write it about in, in the book is that I... No, there's so much good food here, so much good produce, but they Norwegians just don't seem to eat a lot of it. They they just eat other stuff, mm-hmm. which uh, which has been a bit difficult for me. So I've been like trying to revive these Norwegian produce and and recipes, but like cooking from scratch. And they all look at me like, "This is a waste of time. How can you spend all this time cooking?" But I just love food so much. So that's that's what I miss a little bit. And I there's a chapter in the book where I. I'm invited to this traditional dinner, Norwegian dinner, and I'm already salivating like, oh my God, what are they going to serve? This Maybe this fish from northern Norway, or maybe, you know, the smala hoover, which is the, uh, I think it's a lamb head mm-hmm. uh, that is smoked in a very traditional way. And they made a taco, like a Norwegian taco. Like box taco. Box taco. And yeah. I, and right. I was horrified, <laughs> <laughs> totally horrified. <laughs> 
<laughs> with like meat, minced meat in the in the microwave with some kind of powder. Yeah, I mean, uh, I at least do like, it on the stove, not the microwave. Exactly, you know? <laughs> but it's like, come on. <laughs> so but that's, now, uh, what do you think about box taco? No, still, still not a fan. Not, no, still not a <laughs> never, fan. Never adopted that one, did you? No, no, I never adopted that one. But I did adopt a, a few other things, though. But it seems like you, you know, you mentioned the boyfriend in, in Denmark, and then I know in the book you talk about it. So that you broke up, and then you kind of you were at this in between time where you were kind of you were in Norway, and I don't think you quite decided whether you were going to stay here and if it was going to be a long term thing. And this, I don't know, this is another question i think that relates to a lot of travelers this uh, and you can only speak of course from your own personal experience but getting into a country and then at what point do you decide to you know commit to like being in that call you know because i think it does take a level of commitment too you know all right i'm going to be here like let me actually like invest in 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 learning the in, in cracking this cultural code or making friends or stuff like that versus like being on the outside and kind of wavering and being like, oh, is this the place for me? I don't know. Maybe I should go. It's an interesting place to be as a foreigner when you come to a new country. The level of commitment that you bring to it, I think, can influence the experience because how much are you going to, how deep are you going to dive? How much effort are you going to put in? Absolutely. And that and that lasted a long time for me. That lasted maybe five years. For five years, I was like, no, I'm here temporarily. Really? But then I, you were I, fighting against it a bit. Yeah. And I didn't have any plan. To Did you have anywhere. any love for it at, at a certain point? Was it just kind of... Love for what? For, for Norway. For Norway. Yeah, yeah, I like Norway, but I was always... I wasn't quite fitting in, I think, in a it's way. It's hard. And yeah, it's, it's hard. It's a hard place to... And so I was always thinking, no, I might go back to Indonesia or I might, you know, find a job in an NGO somewhere in Asia or I might do this. You have I options to be other places. Yeah, I had yeah. many options. And I speak You don't have to be languages. in a cold place where it's icy all winter, no. you know? I mean. And I had, I, exactly. And I had, uh, you know, I speak several languages. So I had um, options also with different types of employers. Right. But then, and I remember I was living for five years in that flat I describe in the book, uh, which was a flat under a big, big house, uh, which used to be owned by a very famous Norwegian singer uh, who went to Eurovision and all of that. And I was living in this um, basement apartment for five years. And at some point I was thinking, okay, I have to stop kidding myself. I mean, this temporary thing right. <laughs> is, <laughs> is, you know, what does temporary mean? You know, 15 years is also temporary, but then, you know, buy a flat in a nicer place, which is yours, where you don't have all these people deciding for you and raising your rent, etc. So I think that at some point I thought, okay, I'm not sure I'm going to stay here forever, but the temporary element is long enough for me to invest in this place. And it's funny because for the first years I was here, a lot of people were asking me, oh, when are you going home, you know, to France? <laughs> but now nobody asks me that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> There's absolutely nobody asking me that because now I'm just part of, you know, kind of the furniture or whatever and they, <laughs> they know I'm not I'm not leaving I'm not going anywhere yeah. and also I think when I started you know traveling uh, leaving to go back home to France and it started to be like every time I was coming back to Oslo and I was getting through these gates at the airport I was like oh now I'm home yeah, you, you felt know, I'm the so home happy. feeling yeah, yeah I'm so happy to be home and when you have that over time at some point you think well, maybe this is home. 
you know, and yeah. I'm just going to have to ac accept that all this traveling era that I've been living in, in my whole life, maybe that's over at least for a while. Mm. And then I got children and I mean, then that's, I wouldn't say it's over because my own parents traveled a lot with us as children. Right. But, um, but I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so wh what do you love about uh, this being your home? I think it's an it's an easy life. It's an easy daily life. You know, there are many interesting jobs here in Norway, if you speak Norwegian, um, at least in my field of work. It's an, quite an open society. So, for example, me, you know, coming out of nowhere, I don't have any family here. I don't have any connections. I still write for national newspapers, uh, which would be almost impossible in France uh, for a French person, let, let alone a foreigner. Um, so there are many options and work life. I mean, there's a work life balance that is possible. Mm. Uh, and also nature is amazing, yeah. you know, so there's this kind of lifestyle that you have, which is, um, which is comfortable. I'd yeah, say. Okay. It sounds a bit old to say that. I feel a bit old when I say that. But. Well, I mean, with a certain level of comfort that you're describing to, to me, it comes with a lot of freedom, you know, exactly. freedom, yeah. creative freedom for me is mm. one of my values and a simpler life in, in this way, the, the value of nature, I think, you know, we can go out and just spend time in nature and that can be a day. We don't have to plan, you know, a hundred different activities with the kids or whatever. And just that slower pace and that mentality to me is, is a freedom in, in the mind of uh, opening up with creativity and, and things like that. It's one of the things. Yeah. That, and, I, yeah. and I need free time, you know, probably like you. It do. takes time I, to create. and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It takes a lot of time to create. And here I have the luxury of having the balance of having a full time job having a kid, but still having time to create, like writing books and blogs and writing articles and, uh, you know, being part of the public debate. Um, and that's, I mean, that's not given. In which society would I be able to do that? You know, um, absolutely not if I had a full-time job in Paris, that's for sure, because I would be coming home at 8 p.m. Um, and I would be exhausted. And also the, the interesting thing here is that I think there are many opportunities, again, as a woman. Um, but also there is the fact, for example, that I write on the side, I write about Norwegian culture, but I'm also, you know, working on legal, European legal frameworks. That's just fun to a Norwegian. They just think that's interesting. Whereas in France, um, I'm not sure they would have found that that's interesting you know, because employers just want you to do your job. They're not that interested in knowing that you have all these other skills and that uh, you you write for newspapers. Or I remember in the beginning, I was writing a lot about dating in Norway and I was petrified that my employer would find out because my blog was anonymous at the start. I was so afraid because I was afraid to lose this credibility at yeah, work. Right. And they would think I wasn't professional. But then when they found out, they just found it very funny and interesting. You know, they, yeah, they that's didn't. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, yeah, that's interesting to hear because, uh, you know, again, the perception being either reserved or uptight or something. But yeah. as you just shared, I mean, that's a. <laughs> yeah, you're allowed to be a lot of different things. You know, which is in my situation, that's really great for me because I, I feel like I'm a lot of different things. And I think more and more people want this kind of creative side of themselves to, to shine and they want time to create. And then, yeah, that requires time, obviously. Yeah. 
talk about your travels through Norway. I and mean, this is a travel podcast. You did a bike trip through Lofoten. I and, did several, uh, yeah. There was just uh, one article in the paper, I don't know if you saw the other day, in the Often Posting about uh, a bike trip through Lofoten. And uh, are you an adventure traveler in that way? Like uh, a bike touring and stuff like that? Yeah, is that, I did that a lot. Did I did you... that in southern Norway as well. I think I, I'm a bit more ambition, ambitious um, in my mind than my body is able to follow. <laughs> and I remember in, in the Lofoten, I was, uh, I was regretting a little bit because I didn't have the right gear and it was raining a lot and it was in the summer and at some point it almost snowed a bit and I was like Gee, why am I doing this to myself you know <laughs> <laughs> well I mean share yeah I mean share a bit about your experience and this is can you know some people listening might want to travel to Norway like give us a uh, give I, us some of your highlights and some of your tips and things like that from your experiences I think that I think like everywhere else uh, traveling alone makes you meet a lot more people yeah um, and it's funny because on one hand one has the impression when you're in Oslo, you know, on a Monday at 9 a.m. that Norwegians are so closed and they're not talking to you and they're not very friendly. But I've been sleeping over at people's place when I was traveling on my bike alone. People were opening their homes to me, uh, very kind, people I didn't know at all, uh, giving me food and, you know, shelter and repairing my bike and all of that all over Norway. So I think... There is this solidarity in Norway that if you need help, you can knock on someone's door and say, look, you know, I'm traveling alone. I have this problem. I mean, I think Lofoten was a, a very nice trip because there is so much to discover. But right now it's maybe over. I mean, there are a lot of people going there. So I would actually recommend to go to Vesterolen, which is the archipelago just north of Lofoten. Um, I don't know if you've been there. Mm -hmm. No. And that's uh, that's really amazing as well. There's just a, l a lot less tourists than in, in uh, Lofoten. Mm. And just, yeah, biking around. I remember just putting my tent, you know, in Norway, there's something called uh, freedom to roam. You're allowed to put your tent anywhere for up to three days without any authorization. Um, so it's just a wonderful life. You just put your tent next to a lake and stay there a few days and... Eat some bread with pole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I might I might go camping tonight actually or okay. tomorrow because we can just walk right over yeah. here into the forest. Yeah, I think we're we're due for a camping trip and that's a nice I think that thing. I I would like to camp more now that my kid is a bit bigger, but he loves camping. The first he's three years old. The first thing he does when we go camping, he takes off all of his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is the life. <laughs> Throws himself in the river or in the lake yeah. and and there's there's a type of freedom to be in nature, I think. And um, actually, during the pandemic, there was a lot of focus on Friluftsliv, mm -hmm. this Norwegian concept of enjoying being outdoors, just without any goal in particular. And I wrote a piece uh, about that, and it was picked up by CNN really? because they were looking, you know, CNN Health because they were looking into this concept on how can we help, for example, American people to have a more balanced life during the pandemic and not just being, you know, at home working all day and all night, but actually be able to go outside and enjoy nature also close by, not necessarily mm -hmm. take a plane. And um, Yeah. But there is something there in Norway where, you know, it's totally normal for people to just say, you know, what are you doing this weekend? It's like, oh, I'm camping with my two kids 
for the whole weekend. And that's like a total normal thing to say here, even mm. in the middle of the winter, <laughs> which yeah. I find quite... <laughs> it's like yeah. we're going snow camping with my five-year-old and my three-year-old. Okay, and trekking. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But you found this place to be, uh, for somebody that hasn't gone on like a bike tour or some adventure like that before, it's still pretty... It's You can still do it and you can yeah you can yeah. it's a bit tough did you own a bike or did you rent one no i i bought one actually okay and this is this something i want to do that's why yeah I'm and this was this was before uh, electric bikes were affordable so i, I just mm, had a yeah. normal bike but i had very few things i was transporting very few things yeah right uh, so i was traveling light mm. but um i think there's a lot of up, ups and downs and i think one of the mistakes many uh, people do when coming to cycle in Norway is that they don't realize how long the winter lasts here. So you shouldn't think that there's, you know, it's okay to bike in the north of Norway in April without specific tires because it's there's still snow up there in April. Mm -hmm, yeah. So I think a lot of people don't realize that that a lot of the some of the roads are closed, there are snowstorms. Um, so you have to be equipped like properly. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're in the summer, I mean, there's a lot of, it goes up and down. Uh, the whole West Coast is pretty rough. I haven't tried that yet, uh, but I've tried the, um, the South Coast is much more flat. So I definitely uh, recommend that. I did Porschgrün to Christian Sun, uh, cycling on my own, and that's quite flat. And it's a beautiful coast. Okay. Really amazing. Yeah. yeah. I'll let you go in a minute. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about... Uh, how much did writing help you process your journey of integrating into a new country? Yeah, it definitely helps. And I think that's why I started writing this blog. It was kind of, you know, anger management slash <laughs> 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 trying to vent, you know, with yeah. humor, whatever was happening to me. And... Um, because it's it's rough to integrate in a new culture without understanding anything. And what's funny in every single culture I've tried to integrate, I've tried to integrate in, is that the persons you talk to, for them, everything they do is normal. That's the norm. And <laughs> and like as an outsider, uh, you're like, yeah, it's your norm, but it's not everybody else's norm, yeah. and I have to learn that norm because that's not natural to me. And um, so yeah, writing writing has been a great tool. Uh, and I think this book, you know, A Frog in the Fjord, it was my way, it, it was kind of a gift for others, other travelers or foreigners, uh, for them to get the those codes given to them because I would have loved to read this book <laughs> <laughs> before coming to Norway. If this had been available, it would have really helped me, I think. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's great even for people just traveling through to get a better sense of uh, some of the, yeah. the things. So when you see things happening, you understand and you have some context. Yeah. Uh, what is the strangest Norwegian thing, do you think? Uh, there are so many. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh I think the way they the way they deal with conflict I think that's still very strange to me there's this kind of avoid they they avoid conflict a lot and I thought for many years that there weren't any conflicts in Norway and then I realized they're there but they're just not very visible and they're dealt with in a completely different way so I think that's still 
something that's a bit mysterious to me somewhere uh, sometimes mm, yeah yeah mm. you don't see people you know arguing and screaming but still people you know resign from their jobs and divorce and so there are conflicts there but right. it's just to the naked eye it's very hard to see sometimes mm. what what people and just what people feel uh in general and i remember a norwegian guy said you know we never get angry in public or even yeah with anyone and that's why we go skiing so much <laughs> because that's how we get it all out and that's why we go in nature and yeah maybe not just conflict but yeah the way people show emotions and you know everything is always so measured and the tone is even but then when you try to understand what's behind that you realize that there are difficulties and and people having mental health issues and it's just not as open people don't talk about it as much as in other cultures um yeah because i'm not from norway i i feel like if i want to express myself in a certain way i can get a free cultural pass because you know well he's not norwegian and and, and it might cause people to open up a bit more because they feel comfortable because they know i'm from outside so i can have this this type of reaction or this type of conversation or i can you know this guy's talking to me on the street, but it's not weird because he's not Norwegian. Oh, I like this. This is kind of nice, you know, because they're famously known for not talking to each other on the street, exactly. which is totally bizarre for me. <laughs> um, and, and sometimes I miss that about America. So I might just, you know, kind of have the random comment to the person in line or whatever. In Northern and, Norway, and, and, you can and, do and when that they realize that. I'm not Norwegian, they're mm. just okay with it. And they yeah. also see, also in some ways, maybe seem to welcome it because mm. it's a change from the regular. You know, maybe that's just in my head. Maybe there's like this guy, just stop talking to me right now. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And there are areas in Norway where you can talk to people in the street. For example, in northern Norway, it's completely normal, I mm. think. But yeah, uh, there is this free pass. And I used it a lot in the past, but I don't know if I became too Norwegian <laughs> and I don't use it that much. But also I see a shift actually right now that I've I've been this, you know, funny uh or i feel like i've been seen like this funny french girl observing norway and i had a free pass on a lot of stuff mm -hmm. but now more and more i've been here now for 14 years and i think also <laughs> my norwegian has gotten much better right and i feel now that they they just expect the same from me <laughs> than from all the other norwegians and that's yeah. a bit hard sometimes because yeah i've integrated well my norwegian is good but it's still not my culture and mm -hmm. i don't have the all the references and Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah, there's always a journey to integrate more. It, it's never over. It's like mm -hmm. a life project. <laughs> yeah, way. I guess that's one of the things that keeps it really interesting too, right? I still yeah. learn new things about the culture and then through that about myself, mm. you know. What a treat. What a what a great time. I had so much fun chatting with you. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming up here to have the conversation or down or left or right. I don't know which way you came, but uh, your book is A Frog in the Fjord. And of course, we'll link to all this and the, the same for the website name. But do you want to share anything else here? Just go ahead and uh, let people know where they yeah, can the, get in the touch. The book is the book is available on Amazon. Um, it's been recommended by Forbes. So I'm I'm really happy. It's a, it's a bestseller in Norway as well. So it's uh, it's working really well. Um, and I'm, I'm really hoping that even people who are not, you know, living in Norway or traveling necessarily to Norway could read this because we've all read books about travels elsewhere mm. without necessarily going there because it's kind of a journey yeah. uh, somewhere else. And, uh, yeah.
Yeah, it's a really fun uh, travel log in a way to look at Norway, but it's um, through, through your stories and your experiences, you share a lot of aspects of the Norwegian culture. I'm like, I, pretty, I think she pretty much covered everything, but like doing it through your own personal story, which made it super engaging. I really enjoyed it. I want to say congratulations Thank on all your you. success. I'm really glad we're in touch and uh, look forward to hanging out. We could, we could get the families together sometime, yeah, exactly. you know? <laughs> Let's high five it out. <laughs> thanks again. And we'll be chatting soon. Yep. Thanks a lot. <laughs> there you have it. A quick thanks once again to Laura Lou Desjardins. I won't speak any more French. I promise the rest of the show. I want to thank her for stopping by my house and letting me record this great conversation with her and allowing me to share it with you, which is always a privilege. What an incredible community we have here. Don't forget, you're not alone listening to this podcast, and I do invite you to get in touch anytime. My email is jason at zerototravel.com. You can leave a voicemail with that link in the show notes. Very easy to do. Looking for any guest recommendations, feedback on the show, you can share your story, travel tips, anything, really. Just get in touch and say hello. Would love to hear from you. And I do want to thank David for getting in touch. He's a listener, and I want to give him a shout-out here. He reminded me of a phrase I haven't said in a while that I love. Anyway, I'll read the email first. He said, Dear Jason, just wanted to reach out, tell you how much I love the podcast. I travel on the road every day as a home health physical therapist in South Louisiana, Listening to your shows as I drive has helped me with my future travel dreams. While my family and I do get to go on some pretty amazing fast travel vacations every summer, including Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Hawaii, and numerous national parks in the USA, my wife and I dream of the day when we can do some uh, real, quote, slow travel, both domestically and internationally. And he goes on to share some more kind words about the show. And I just wanted to say thanks for writing and for reminding me of a phrase I usually belt out with a guitar in hand while I'm strumming some chords. You got to keep the dream alive. Keep the dream alive. Got to keep the dream alive. Uh, <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous, but it fires me up because sometimes the dreams can get dulled. Dulled under the struggles of life or you know, everyday routines, whatever. And it's good to remind ourselves of our big dreams and to keep them alive every single day. Don't let them die out. You know, it's okay if they wither sometimes. Sometimes you have a plant and it needs watering. You forget to water it for a couple of weeks, but then you water it and it sort of springs back to life and gets its greenery back and, and the flowers perk up. That's That plant is your dreams. So keep the dream alive. Water your dreams today is what I'm saying. I didn't know I was going to say that, but that's what I'm saying now. Be sure to water your plants and your dreams today. <laughs> okay, I'll leave you with this quote. A good reminder where you can find inner peace any moment of the day. This one's from Buddha. Do not look for a sanctuary in anyone except yourself. I'll leave you with that. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 